Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Uh, welcome. Welcome to Grace. Good day to be here. Um, hey, this is a picture of uh, the United States Air Force Academy Cemetery on their campus. And on this, on this cemetery, one of these graves is not like the others. One of these graves is different. Okay? It's this one right here. It's the headstone for uh, William Crawford. And if you look closely, you'll see that uh, Bill Crawford was not in the Air Force. <laughs> he was never an officer. I, I guess he gets into, the, into that cemetery because he was the janitor there. And that's, that's why he's got a headstone there. Um, he uh, was a forgettable person, unassuming. He just went about his business you know, mopping floors and cleaning out urinals and he was doing what he was supposed to do next and uh, didn't draw much attention to himself. And then it changed uh, on a Saturday in 1976 where one of the cadets was studying the, um, uh, the Allied, World War II, uh, the Allied invasion, invasion uh, where it stalled in Italy and read about something that happened on September 13th, 1949, where Private Bill Crawford not Master Sergeant Bill Crawford, but Private Bill Crawford was running point for his company that day and got out pretty far in advance to everyone else and saw that there was three Nazi machine gun nests set up to ambush his company as they came through. And being all alone and unable to communicate back to his men, he single-handedly, with merely his rifle and a few hand grenades, destroyed all three machine gun nests. And then as his company came in to advance, he stayed back to guard the wounded from, you know, trailing, uh, trailing behind uh, Nazis. And he was captured in that context and was held as a prisoner of war for over a year and a half. Now, back home, his father was greeted by a general at his door and given two things. One, he was notified that his son had been killed in action, and two, that he had earned the Medal of Honor, the greatest military award that you can earn. But he was still alive. <laughs> and so Bill Crawford came back to the United States, finished out a full expression of his tour in the Army, and retired as a sergeant or a major sergeant. Did I say that right? Major Sergeant? Sergeant Major? Sergeant Major? Yeah, sorry. Don't make them mad. Sergeant Major. <laughs> Non-commissioned officer. And then he wanted to continue to serve his country, so he went to, to, to work as a janitor in the Air Force Academy. And one of the cadets found out about this, and then on Monday morning he ran to uh, Bill Crawford and said, there's a picture here. It looks a lot like you. Is this you? And he said, long pause, yeah, it is. Well, why didn't you tell anybody? He said, well, it was one day in my life, and it was a very long time ago. Well, this cadet made sure that the word spread like a virus through the academy, and it didn't take long for things to change, where now the cadets were saying, hello, Mr. Crawford, hello. And sometimes the guys would leave stuff around for the janitor to pick up, and not this Medal of Honor janitor. And as it turned out, he had never been personally awarded the Medal of Honor. It had been given to his father. And so in the, the class of 1984 made sure that that would not stay the way it is. And so they brought him into their graduation and in front of the academy and the VIPs and the generals that were there, 
It was President Ronald Reagan that draped that Medal of Honor, that blue ribbon with the stars around his neck, and he was given that. There is um, a headstone that's different from all the rest. In the acreage of the acres of the cemetery there, there's only one that says this on it, Medal of Honor. Only one has that star. It belonged to some old janitor. You know, sometimes you think you know someone, you don't know anything. There's a lot more to that man than his mop. When we look at the life of Jesus Christ, I bring that up because we think we might know who Jesus is. We think maybe he's kind of cute. You know, he, he, uh, you know what? He helps out some of those weak people that need courage. He gives hope to those old people that are facing death. He's, he's Jesus the janitor. He comes and he cleans up after our messes. Thank you, Jesus, janitor. And that's not who he is. And we're on a quest together. This congregation is on a quest together to, to do this. Let's find out who Jesus really is. And you do that two ways. First, you abandon, you drill down, and you find and you seek and find those things in your life that are not true about Jesus. It doesn't matter what you were taught. It doesn't matter how you were raised. It doesn't matter your opinions. These things don't count. And then part two, you find those out. Part two is you go to the original witnesses, the people that knew Jesus, that were there when it happened, and then you, you make a decision that's based on what is right and real and true about Jesus the Christ. And when you make, now you're making, now this is the road less traveled, by the way, finding out who Jesus of Nazareth is for yourself. It is your faith. And when you find out who Jesus of Nazareth is, then you can love or hate him. You can, you can ignore him or you can fall down and worship him. You can sell, you know, just abandon all of your life quests and rearrange your entire value system. Or you can want to kill him. Want to kill him? Yes, want to kill him. Our story today ends with this sentence. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how they wanted to destroy him. <laughs> this is how people respond to firsthand experiences with Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, I mean, it says Philistines and Herodians. Friends, I mean, my arms are not long enough to describe how far apart these two groups are. Pharisees are religious isolationists and, and conservative and right, very much into the details. Herodians, they call them that because they're Jews mostly just by heritage. They're politically minded mostly. They're selfish, ambitious for their own power and money. And these two did not get along. They couldn't agree on the color of the sky. But they could agree on this, that Jesus of Nazareth, he needed to die. We've just got to figure out how. Um, we're in chapter 2 of the book of Mark, and things have changed, as you can see, because as we're going through just the 14 chapters, it's a short uh, biography. And in chapter one, everything is well. And every time Jesus does things, it's like, oh my goodness, this is great. And they're praising God and they're cheering and saying he's awesome and he's more than we thought. Chapter two, we're going to see the first of a set of, of, of stories that where he, he, he's upping the game and he's, he's showing people, Mark's going to tell us that we've got more than we bargained for with Jesus. He might be maybe not who we thought, he was. He's not behaving like we should. And so we're going to start seeing people being shocked and confused and sometimes even furious at him. That's what we're going to see. Chapter 2 starts that. It's going to go through the Gospels. Today, we're going to look at three stories. All three of them are going to say something about Jesus that you need to identify whether or not you believe that to be true. These are firsthand accounts, so it doesn't matter what your background is. This is what really happened. 
This should change your view of Jesus, and you should change your life according to this changed view. Okay? Three stories. The first one we learn that Jesus is Lord. All capital letters, L-O-R-D. That means Jesus is God. The story starts in chapter 1, or chapter 2 in the first verse, and they go to Peter's house. It's, it's base camp for them, and it is packed with people, so much so that they are packed out of the doors. And some, uh, a gentleman that is, is paraplegic has four very good friends, and they're trying, to, they're trying to get him in to see Jesus so Jesus might heal him. He can't get in because of the doors jammed, and so they go up on the roof, pull it apart, lower him down, and right in the middle of Jesus, you know, speaking God's word to them, here comes this man that's a paraplegic, and here's what Jesus offers him, verse 5. And Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paraplegic, very kind, son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, that's more than they bargained for, verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, and they were questioning their hearts, saying, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, let's stop right there, because I want you to see that their logic in here is flawless. They're, they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy because here's how it looks. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus says, I'm going to forgive these, all of your sins. Therefore, Jesus is blaspheming because Jesus is saying, I can, I can do what only God can do here, forgive sins. I mean, think of, think of it conceptually. I mean, it's, it's almost algebraic, right? Um, if you were to run into Melinda and me at the mall, and then suddenly out of nowhere you just kick me in the shins as hard as you can while I'm down on the ground crying, Melinda, it would be like her to say, I forgive you for kicking Matt in the shins like that, and um, you're released, you know, hugs. Me, when I recover, I would say, wait a minute, Melinda, you can't forgive that person for kicking me in the shins. They didn't kick you in the shins. They kicked me in the shins. I'm the only person that can forgive them. And no, I'm not going to forgive them right now because I'm the only one that can. So Jesus says, I'm going to forgive all your sins against me. All your sins against God were against me. Jesus is right here. He's claiming, oh, I'm the creator. I'm the one who made you. I'm the one who made the laws. Your sins were against me. This is, this is what he is saying clearly, and people know that. The audience knows that. Jesus knows that. And so Jesus, he goes on, and he says, okay, which is easier to say to a paraplegic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins? Only God can. He says, which one's harder? <laughs> To, for, for, to get a paraplegic to walk or to, to have someone forgive sins. He goes, I'm going to just show you. I'm going to show you. Watch this. So in ver the next verse says, and so he says to the paraplegic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately and he picked up his bed and he went out in front of all of them. And they were all amazed and glorifying God. And they said, we've never seen anything like this before. Mark wants you to know this. He knows this story firsthand. Everybody at Peter's house saw it happen. Jesus is Messiah, but what it means is Jesus is God. I mean, he, Jesus, let me just say this again. Jesus is, is God Almighty, Jehovah. I mean, he is not, he's, no, he's no longer like the miracle worker sent one. He is, he is God of creation. He's God of the universe. And that's the point of this story. It does not allow us to believe anything else about Jesus than he is, he is God. Here's a great quote from G.K. Chesterton that C.S. Lewis made famous. You might have heard it. 
talking about Jesus is I'm, what I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying really foolish things about Jesus. They say, I, I really accept Jesus for a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And that's one thing you must never do. A man who is merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be like a lunatic, like somebody that believed they were a poached egg, or he would be the devil from hell. You, you have to make up your mind. It's either he's a man, either this man is the son of God, God himself, or a madman, or something even worse than that. You can shut him up as a fool, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall down at his feet and worship him as God Almighty, but let's not come with this patronizing nonsense and believing that he's a good human being, he's a good teacher, because he never left that for us, he never intended to. Mark wants, this is the application for this section, it's that you, you need to know this, that Jesus may not be who you think he is, Jesus is God. And when we say God here, we're not talking about a God in a polytheistic right worldview, we're talking about the God of the Old Testament who gave us the first commandment, I am the only God and you shall have no other gods before me. That's who he's claiming to be. That's the first thing you need to understand that Mark's telling us. By the way, just for your help, He's not telling us we have to necessarily understand that. Okay? Somehow, a perfect human soul that he has and we don't has the capacity to hold and contain the divine being. Again, I'm not saying I like this, but I'm just saying that Jesus is like us as human, but he's not like us in that he is more human than us. He, he, is, he is unbroken. And he's not like us that he's God, God above, Jehovah. And, and you don't have to understand this. I, there's a lot of things. I don't understand most things, like women, and one woman in particular. And it doesn't mean I don't believe in her. It doesn't mean I don't love her. The adventure of my life is to learn about who she is and to love her more. That's what we do with Jesus. That's the adventure of our life with Jesus. He is God. He is man. He is the God-man. How does that work? I don't know. I'm going to spend some time thinking a lot about that. But one thing I won't do is say that he's not God. He never left that available to me. Jesus is Lord. All caps. Second story. Now Jesus is walking outside in, in the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there's a tax collector there. His name is Matthew, and he says two words to Matthew. He says, follow me, and he does. Now listen, you have to understand, tax gatherers were despised. This is the second thing we learned. Jesus loves the lost. Jesus loves the lost. And you can't get more lost, I guess, than this tax gatherer. Jews hated tax collectors. I think everybody hated tax collectors. They had two things wrong with them, especially from a Jewish point of view. One, they worked for Rome. They were traitors. And two, they had the Roman guards as their muscle men. And so it didn't take long for them to figure out that they could charge you whatever they wanted. Their income stream was based on how much they could extort from you. And so they were traitor extortionists. And Jesus says to one of them, Matthew, follow me. And if he gets up from that table, he's never getting it back because there's always a fight for that income stream. Later on, Matthew's having this big going away party, and it says, and, and his party had many tax gatherers and many sinners. So the place is full of the reprobates. And here's what Jesus, this is what happens. And the scribes of the Pharisees said, when he saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he says to the disciples, 
Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Here is Jesus' purpose statement right here, verse 17. And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. The second thing Mark wants you to know about Jesus is he loves the lost. He loves the despised. He loves those that are not righteous. He actually pursued those who didn't have a chance of knowing God on their own. Second, look what he's doing. He loves them up close. He loves them personally. He is connecting with them. There's no distance between them. He's, he's pursuing them. That's what we're supposed to do. Look, right? He, to, for grace to transform a person, grace needs to touch that person. And Jesus does not mind spending time with what other religious people think are, are, are the detestable. There's a great story. Uh, uh, a pastor, an author, uh, Tony Campolo, uh, was uh, in Honolulu. He had flown in to do some speaking gigs, and uh, he couldn't sleep one night. So he goes to this all-night diner. It's about, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning. And it's just the guy that runs the diner and about four to six other prostitutes you know, at the end of their shift. And he overhears one of them saying, hey, what, um, tomorrow's my 39th birthday. And she just realized, and she was excited about it. And one of the other ones kind of crass says, what, what, do you want a party? And she kind of retreated back and said, well, you know, I mean, I've just never had a birthday party. I, yeah, I kind of, whatever, I'll never have one. No, you know, whatever's next, okay. So they leave, and, and Tony Campolo figures, you know what, let's, let's have her a party. And so he asks the, the guy who runs the diner, and they bake a cake for her, and with a little band of friends and one stranger, she walks in, and they all scream, surprise, happy birthday. She unravels. She starts crying and, and thanking everyone. And she, she's, it's the first time she's ever had a birthday cake in her life. She's 39, never had a birthday cake. And so she says, can I take it home? I just want to stare at it. So she's walking out the door, and, and Campolo says, hey, can I pray for you? And she said, oh, I'd love for you to pray for me. So he prays for her. He says, I, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would bring salvation to her and that she'd understand about your love, and I pray that you would change her life, and I pray that your goodness and greatness would be obvious to her. Amen. She leaves. Everybody's gone. The owner says, you never told me you were a pastor. You didn't say this was a pastoral thing. He goes, what, what kind of church... Are you a pastor of? And Campolo says, well, the kind of church that has birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. That's the kind of church I think Jesus wants to be part of. Because Jesus is God, and he loves the detestable. He loves and pursues up close those people that are not righteous in need of a soul physician. Third story, Jesus is the Lord of the law. Jesus is the Lord of the law. Here's the story. Jesus is walking with his band of merry men, his disciples, and they're on their way to the synagogue because it's Sabbath. And on their route, they take a break for snacks, and they're pulling the heads off the, off the wheat on this, on, this, on this grain field, and that lights up, again, the religious leaders, verse 24, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, look what your guys are doing. It's not lawful to do that on the Sabbath. Jesus is like, you just don't get this. Here's his answer. And he says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Son of Man, by the way, that's me, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. He's, he's Lord over everything. And they're like, they still don't get this. And so now Jesus is going to make sure they, they understand it. So they're on their way to the synagogue, I told you. 
he gets to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there's a man there, and, and his hand is all shriveled up. And so Jesus is kind of looking around, and they're looking at him like, don't you do it. Don't, don't. And here's what, and verse 4, and, and he said to them, is it lawful? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, uh, to save a life or to kill? And they just say, quiet. And so here's it. Here, look at all the emotions involved in Jesus. And so he looked around at them with anger and grieved at the hardest of their hearts. And he said to them, you don't even get the Sabbath. So he said, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Do you see the point? Look at, look at the extent that Jesus goes through to prove this point. This man's hand is all shriveled up. It was shriveled up on Friday. It's going to stay shriveled up till Saturday or until Sunday and Monday, right? I mean, this is not a medical emergency. And Jesus, <laughs> Jesus could play it safe. He could just say, you know what, friend, if you can just wait till sunset tonight or I could catch up with you on Monday, I will go back to being that miracle worker, Jesus, that you want. And would that be okay that I heal you tonight or tomorrow? But that's good. We're all good here. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, yeah. He's trying to make this bold point. He's saying, I am the Lord of the law because I wrote the law. He's not violating the law. He knows the meaning of the law. And he will not play these religious games with, this, with these religious leaders. And that's why verse 6 is how we start, is how we end. The Pharisees went out immediately and held a council with Herodians, the people they hate, and they, against Jesus, and, and how to destroy him. They, they don't want any part of him. He's getting too powerful, and he knows too much, and he's, he can't be contained within the boundaries of their expectations. So he's going to have to die. They had firsthand experience with him, and they want to kill him because he is, here's the application, he's Lord of the law. He wrote the law, and he knows the purpose of the law, and he will not allow it to be abused. Look what, look what, why is Jesus, remember he said he was angry, and he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Why? Because as the lawgiver, he gives, let's look at the Sabbath law, Right? The third or fourth commandment, depending on how you count it, right? He, he's, the, the Sabbath, it's, it's, a, it's a gift. Every six days on the seventh day, you take a vacation. I require this. So, I mean, what's it for? It, it, it's to restore those things that are diminished. It's to repair those things that are broken, right? It's to resuscitate those things that are, that are tired. And verse 27, it is a fork in the road, and you have to decide. It is a, it's not mild, it's a T. You've got to turn one way or the other. It's a paradigm statement. Look at verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. There are two paradigms of life going on in this sentence and in this experience, whether or not I can heal a person on, 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 on a rest day. And the, the paradigm is the difference between religion and the gospel. Because the religion says this. He says, the law was given to you. It is a burden. It enslaves you. The gospel, the law is given to you. It is a gift, and it sets you free. You can have two people doing the exact same thing, obey the law, but for two completely different reasons. Because there's a paradigm difference here between religion and the gospel. 
the, the religious people, right, they're, they're the ones who say, you know, there's a code of conduct here, and if I do the code of conduct, I will be blessed by God, I will be approved by God, right? I obey, I perform, and I'm accepted. That's every religion in the world, friends. The gospel says, I am accepted already, so I'll obey. I've already received acceptance from God. He's given me a manual to live my life by. Why wouldn't I do that? Even the Ten Commandments, right? Even the Ten Commandments starts off with, I have already saved you from Egypt. You're mine. I accept you. You are my holy people. You're my chosen race. You're my baby. Literal translation there. It's my baby. You're my, you're my child. Now, here's some rules. So even the Ten Commandments were assuming the gospel. The gospel's in that. Religion says, I'm going to give stuff to God, right? And then he's going to owe me. Religious people get to heaven and they're tapping their toes. Let's get these gates open. The gospel says, you know me. You know my secrets. You know my motives. You know how detestable I am. And you know my crimes. And you love me because you love the detestable. You pursue me because you pursue the tax collector in me, and so I'm accepted not on me, but on what you've done for me. <laughs> Jesus says, oh, I get you, and I'm going to go to the cross for you anyway. And, and so Jesus is saying the reason he's mad is he's, he's, and, and he's, he's, he's grieving over their hard hearts because I, I know the law. I'm the Lord of the law. I wrote the law, and it was good for you. And so many of you in this church this is our experience here. People come here for refuge. You come from hyper-religious, over-connected families, and you know, the, you know the religious law where quite often your parents used the, the rules, right? You knew the rules and you knew the expectations, and that was to control you and to keep you close. You didn't know why. You know, you didn't know the whys, and you didn't know love necessarily. And, and so you, 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 it is very difficult not to use that on Jesus. They might have brought you to a church so they could use Jesus to keep you in control and to keep you close. You need to see what Jesus is doing with this law. He's not abolishing it. He's calling it. It's a great thing. He says, look, there's reasons why I gave you the law. I love you. I pursued you. And the law was made to set you free. That's why I gave it to you. See Jesus as the Lord of the law. That's what he wants you to do. How do, you, how do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus for what he is? Does he surprise you? Exactly. I mean, look at the people in this crowd. First-hand accounts. What? Did, did he just say that he's going to forgive this man? Oh, he did say that. He said it three times. Jesus said, Jesus said he was God, God Almighty. He's not the janitor. He cannot fit in your back pocket. He cannot, you know, be used at your convenience. He keeps the entire created universe tucked between his fingerprints. He's bigger than you can contain. He's God. That's what Mark wants you to know. That's what Jesus wants you to know. He understands you. He understands the deepest part of yourself. Those things that motivate you that are deviant, you, you, we can't do good things without a bad motive. He knows that. He, he, know, he knows the things that we use to define us, 
and how idolatrous they are. We, we are idol worshipers, and he pursues us, and he loves us. He sees us, as we should see ourselves, as detestable tax gatherers, traitors, extortionists, and we even try that on God. And he says, I will still go to the cross for you. The third thing he's telling us right here is, he's, I will not play religion with you. It makes him angry, and it grieves him to see us play this tit-for-tat, quid quo quo. You know, uh, you do this, I'll do that. Here's why. There is no power in religion. There is no power in duty. You can't change a soul with that paradigm of thinking. Grace transforms. Only grace can transform. It's the only way that works. There's a, there's a movie that I watched oh, it was so long ago, but it, it, this one scene has stuck with me. Um, it's called uh, The Fisher King. It's, you know, it's the old uh, Celtic story, but made modern in 1991. Uh, Robin Williams plays the, the, the person, and, and Robin Williams, believe it or not, he, he plays a crazy guy that hates himself. I know you've seen that probably in other movies. But in this one, he, he, yeah, he's, he's, kind of, he's a homeless, crazy guy that hates himself. And he finds someone that, he, that would actually go out on a date with him, and it turns out she's uh, pretty clumsy, and, and, well, she hates herself too. Uh, she's a clutch. She has a terrible haircut. She dresses poorly. The, the whole thing. They're made. They're made for each other. I mean, they really are. So they go out on their first date together, and he's walked her to the front door, and he says, "Hey, could you give me your phone number? I, I would really like to call you." And here's what she said. She said, "I won't, and I will never see you again. I don't want to ever. I don't want to ever see you again because, by some you know accident of fate." Uh, we were able to get through this evening, and you don't hate me yet, but you will. Everyone does, and I cannot take that kind of rejection anymore. I just can't, and so, you know, we could, let me, we could spend more time together, and we could go out together, and then you would find out who I am, and then you would hate me, and then you would get distant, and then you'd stop showing up, and then you'd just disappear. That's how this ends, I don't, I can't take that. So no, you can't talk to me. You can't call me. This is our last date. And then and the, the Williams character, he gets so impatient with her, with her self-deprecation, and he says, no, no, listen to me. Listen to me. I've been following you for weeks, and I love you. I know you already. And I love you. I know that you can't go through those turnsicle doors. I know, I know how you get novels at that book stop. I know every meal you order each day of the week. I know that every blouse you have has a spill stain on it. I know, I know that you, on good days, when you reward yourself, you get a jawbreaker before you go back to work. I know you hate your job. And I know you think that you don't have a single friend. And I know that you feel different and you feel isolated and separated from everyone else. I know those things about you. And I love you. And I will not leave you. And I will never grow distant from you. I just want to talk to you one more time. And then she's, well, clearly, she's just crying. And then she does this. 
she reaches out and she touches his face and says, are you real? Now that's a powerful scene because that is the longing of our souls, friend. That's what we long for in, in, in our relationships, just one, if we get lucky, right, in, in life. But it is, it is a calling from so much deeper than just having, right, a, a co-laborer in life. It is a calling that goes back to the nature of our souls, and it is God who's calling us. That, you would, that, that we hope that he would know us, know how ugly we are and can be the desperate motives, <laughs> and, and that his infallible, like avalanching love would be greater than our sin. And that's who Jesus is. Is that the Jesus you know? Lord Jesus, we pray that this God this Jesus that Mark tells us about in this chapter and a half would be the, the Jesus that we worship. And Lord, I, I could probably pray for some people here that, that uh, have, have, have made you janitor Jesus, you know, an errand boy, a person that we think is soft and helpful to people that are weak. And Lord, I ask that you would blow their minds and show them who you are, that you, that you love them, that you are God Almighty, and then you will not play religion with them. You will not manipulate them with the law. You will not get power through the law. You will set them free because of your acceptance. Lord, if there are people here that are living in a religious way, I'd ask that today, this day, they would abandon that paradigm and surrender it, bury it deep in the ground, and they would choose that you accept them because of what Jesus did, not what they've done. That Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, proving the point, has made them well. And Lord, I pray we would live within the boundaries of your law, dancing, playing, celebrating the way we were meant to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.